Chapter Six of De Lorme by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. We were very young to feel such passions as then throbbed within our bosoms, so strong, so keen, so durable. But our hearts had never known any other. They had not been hardened in the petrifying stream of time nor had the world engraved so many lines upon the tablets of feeling as to render them unsusceptible of any deep and defined impression our whole hearts were open to love and we loved with our whole hearts the two days of my stay soon drew to an end and on the morning of the third my horse and that of Hussein, together with a mule for father francis were brought into the courtyard and after receiving my mother's counsel and my father's blessing I mounted and rode forth with few of those pleasurable feelings which I had anticipated in setting out to explore foreign lands. But love was at that moment the predominant feeling in my bosom, and I would have resigned all, abandoned all, to have stayed and passed my life in tranquillity beside Helen. It was not to be, and I went forth, but a sensation of swelling at my heart prevented me from either conversing with Father Francis or noticing the beautiful country through which we travelled, a thing seldom lost to my eyes. By the time we reached Pierrefitte, however, a distance of about ten miles, the successive passing of different objects, though each but called my attention to the very slightest degree, upon the whole began to draw my mind from itself, and when proceeding onward we wound our horses through the narrow gorge leading towards Luz. The magnificent scenery of the pass, with its enormous rocks, its luxuriant woods, and its rushing river, stole from me my feelings of regret, and left me nothing but admiration of the grand and beautiful works which nature had spread around. By the time the day had somewhat waned, for we were obliged to conform our horse's pace to the humour of Father Francis's mule, which was not the most vivacious of animals, the sun had got beyond the high mountains on our right, which, now robed in one vast pall of purple shadow, rose like titans against the sky, and seemed to cover at least one-third of its extent. But the western hills still caught the rays, and kept glowing with a thousand varied hues as we went along, like the quick changes of hope as man advances along the tortuous and varied path of existence. Amongst other objects on which the sunshine still caught was a little woody mound projecting from the surface of the hill, and crowned with an old round tower beginning to fall into ruins as we passed it the good priest who never loved to see me in any of those fits of gloom which sometimes fell upon me the natural placidity of his disposition leading him to miscomprehend the variability of mine pointed out to me the mound and the crumbling tower as the spot where a great victory had been gained over the moors in times long gone and our conversation gradually turned to war and deeds of renown. But Father Francis had abjured the sword, and little appreciated the word glory. "'Glory, my dear Louis,' said he, according to the world's acceptation of the world, is, I am afraid, little better in general than the gilding with which mighty robbers cover over great crimes. When I was young, however, I thought like you, and I am afraid all young men will think so, till reason teaches them that the only true glory which man can have is to be found in the love of his fellow-creatures, not in their fears. 
all other glory is but emptiness. You remember the Italian poet's lines on the field of Cannae. Glory, alas! What is it but a name? Go search the records of the years of old, and thou shalt find too sure that brightest fame, for which hard toiled the skilful and the bold, was but a magic gift that none could hold, a name traced with an infant's finger in the sand, o'er which dark time's effacing waves are rolled, a fragile blossom in a giant's hand, crushed with a thousand more, that die as they expand. I stand on Cannae, here for endless years, might fond remembrance dream o'er days pass by, tracing this bitter place of many tears, but memory too has flown, and leaves the eye to rest on naught but bleakness, and the sigh to mourn the frailty of man's greatest deeds. Oh, would he learn by truth such deeds to try, lo, how devouring time on conquest feeds, forgot the hand that slays, forgot the land that bleeds. Time, mighty vaunter, thou of all the race, that strive for glory o'er thine acts canst raise, the monument that never falls, and place the ruins of a world to mark thy ways. Each other conquers, memory decays, to heap the pile that comments on thy name. Thy column rises with increasing days, and desolation adds unto thy fame. But can I was forgot? Time, tis with thee the same. It is astonishing how chilly the words of age fall upon the glowing enthusiasm of youth. As we go on through life, doubtless we gather all the same cold truths, but it is by degrees, not all at once, as when the freezing experience of many years is poured forth, like a sudden fall of snow upon our hearts. Lucky, most lucky it is, that we cannot believe the lessons which the old would teach us, for certainly, if we were as wise when we come into life as we are when we go out of it, there would be nothing great and very little good done in the world. I mean that there would be no enthusiasm of wish or of endeavour. Nevertheless, there is always some damp rests upon the mind from such views of human existence, however warm may be the fire of the heart, and when Father Francis had repeated his lines upon glory, he left a weight upon me which I found difficult to throw off. We were now near Luce, and the good father's mule, which, by the way, was the best epitome I ever saw of a selfish and interested spirit, as if it entertained a presentiment of approaching hay and oats, suffered its sober legs to be seduced into an amble that speedily brought us to the door of the little cabaret, where we were to pass the night. The accommodations which its appearance promised were not of the most exquisite description, and one must have been very charitable to suppose it contained anything better than pumpkin soup and goose's thighs. Father Francis, however, was tired and exhausted with a longer ride than he had taken for more than fifty years. Houssay was an old soldier, and I was too young and in too high health to trouble myself much about the quality of my entertainment. Dismounting then, our horses were led into the stable, and we ourselves were shown to the room of general reception, which we found already tenanted by a fat monk, all grease and jollity, and a thin gentleman in black, who, for grimness and solemnity, looked like a mourning sword in a black scabbard. It seemed as if nature, having made a more fat and jovial man than ordinary in the capuchin, had been fain to patch up his companion out of the scrapings of her dish. 
father francis did not appear to like the couple and indeed he had reason for it wanted no great skill in physiognomy to read in the jovial countenance of the monk a very plain history of the sort of self-denial and sensual mortification which he practised on himself as for his companion had i known as much of the world as i do now i should instantly have understood him to be one of those solemn villains who if they sometimes lose a good opportunity by want of conversational powers often catch many a gull by their gravity and escape many an error into which a talkative rascal is sure to fall by his very volubility however i was at an age when every one more or less pays for experience and if i took upon me to judge the pair of worthies before me i did not judge them rightly immediately after our entrance father francis as i have said being very much fatigued retired to bed whispering to me that i had better get my supper and follow his example as soon as i could to this however i was not very well inclined my stock of animal powers for the day not being yet half exhausted and as i saw the aubergiste beginning to place on the table before the monk and his companion various savoury dishes for which my ride had provided an appetite i whispered to Houssay and proposed to them to join their table the matter was soon arranged my capuchin professing a taste for good cheer and good company somewhat opposed to his vows of fasting and meditation and my thin cavalier laying his hand on his heart and making the most solemn bow that his stiff backbone could achieve the viands set before us offered a very palatable contradiction to what the appearance of the house had promised and the conversation was as savoury as the dishes for the monk was a man whose fat and happiness overflowed in a jocose and merry humour and even the thin person in black though his mustachios were rather of a grave cast would occasionally venture a dry and solemn joke which was a good deal enhanced by his appearance the wine however was the most thin poor miserable abortion of vinegar that ever i tasted and after having made every tooth in my head as sharp as a drawn sword by attempting to drink it i inquired of the capuchin whether any better could be procured within twenty miles for love or money most assuredly answered he for money though not for love no one gives anything for love except a young girl of sixteen or an old woman of seventy but the truth is my host tells us always that this is the best wine in the world till he sees a piece of silver between the fingers of some worthy signor who desires to treat a poor capuchin to a horn of the best cahors oh if that be all i answered we will soon have something better and i drew a crown piece from my purse oh aubergiste exclaimed the capuchin as soon as he saw it a flagon of your best for this sweet youth and mind i tell you tis a mortal sin to give bad wine when tis well paid for and a capuchin is to drink it i was not at the time of life to estimate very critically every propriety in the demeanour of a companion for half an hour man unlike the insect begins the being as a butterfly which he generally ends as a chrysalis amusement or as it should be called excitement is everything at nineteen and the butterfly though it destroys not like the worm nor hoards like the bee still flies to every leaf that meets its sight if it be but for the sake of the flutter the capuchin's gaiety amused me and i saw no deeper into his character 
The wine was brought, and having passed once round and proved to all our tastes, the jovial monk set the flagon between himself and me, and enlivened the next half-hour with a variety of tales, at the end of each taking a deep draught, and exclaiming, "'If it be not a true story, may this be the last drop I ever shall drink in my life!' At length, with a story far more marvellous than any of the others, the capuchin emptied the flagon, adding his usual asseveration in regard to its truth. "'I don't believe a word of it,' said the man in black. "'And I say it's true,' reiterated the capuchin, laughing till a stag might have jumped down his throat. "'Order another flagon of wine, and I will drink upon it till the death.' "'Nay,' replied the other, "'I will play you for a flagon of the best at trick-track, and treat the company.' The capuchin readily accepted the defiance. The cards were brought, the window shut, and mine host lighted six large candles in an immense sconce, just behind the capuchin and myself. The thin gentleman with his mustachios was on the other side of the table with old Houssay, who, though an indefatigable old soldier, seemed tired out, and laying his head upon his folded arms, fell asleep. In the meanwhile the wine made its appearance and passed round, after which the game began, and the poor player in black lost his flagon of wine in the space of five minutes, much to the amusement of the capuchin, who chuckled and drank with much profane glee. The whole scene amused me. I flattered myself I was fond of studying character, and I would have done a great deal to excite the two originals before me to unfold themselves. This they seemed very well inclined to do, without my taking any trouble to bring it about. The thin gentleman got somewhat angry, and claimed his revenge of the capuchin, who beat him again, and chuckled more than ever. The other's rage then burst forth. He attributed his defeat to ill luck, and demanded what the monk meant by laughing, and whether he meant to say he had played ill. "'Aye, truly,' replied the capuchin, "'and so ill that I will answer for it this young gentleman, even if he knows nothing of the game, will beat you for a pistole.' And turning round he asked me if I knew the game, or if I was afraid to play with so skilful an antagonist. I said that I knew very little of it, but that I was willing to play, and took the cards, only intending to sit one game, seeing that my opponent played miserably ill. He lost as before, and still cursing his luck, demanded his revenge, which was worse. Nothing could be more diverting than the fury into which he cast himself, twisting up his mustachios, and wriggling his back into contortions, of which I had not deemed its rigidity capable, while the capuchin chuckled, and looking over my cards, advised me what to do. At length my adversary proposed to double, to which I agreed, hoping heartily that he would win, and thus leave us as we had sat down. But fortune was still against him, or rather his bad playing, for he laid his game entirely open, and suffered me to play through it. He lost, and drawing forth a leathern pouch was about to pay me, when the capuchin said that perhaps I would play one more game for the twelve pistoles. The thin gentleman said it would be but generous of me, but, however, he could not demand it if I chose to refuse. So much foolish shame did I feel about taking his money, that, to tell the truth, I was glad to sit down again, and we recommenced each staking twelve pistoles. Fortune had changed, however. The dice favoured him. He played more carefully, and won the game. 
but by so slight a matter that it showed nothing but extraordinary luck could have made him gain it it was now my turn to be anxious i had lost six pistoles out of the money my father had given for my journey to spain how could i tell father francis i asked myself especially when i had lost them in such a manner and in such company my antagonist too had won by such a mere trifle that it made me angry i therefore resolved to try again and again i lost the sum was so considerable i dared not stop and i claimed my revenge my adversary was all complaisance and as before we doubled our stake an intolerable thirst had now seized upon me and pouring out a cup of wine i set it down beside me while i played the game went on and i never suspected false play though my opponent paused long between each of his cards but that was natural as the stake was large and i fancied that he felt the same palpitating anxiety that i did myself to conceal this as much as possible while he pondered i fixed my eyes upon the cup of wine in which the lights of the sconce were reflected very brilliantly suddenly two of the flames seemed to become obscured for i lost the reflection in the wine this surprised me but i had still sufficient presence of mind to take no notice and keep my eyes fixed when presently the lights appeared again the moment after the same eclipse took place and raising my eyes to my opponent's countenance i perceived that his glance was fixed upon a point immediately above my head the matter was now clear my good friend the capuchin who was kindly giving me his advice and assistance seeming all the while most anxious that i should recover my loss and assuring me that it was a momentary run of ill luck which must change within five minutes took care at the same time to communicate to my adversary by signs above my head the cards i had in my hand and what i was likely to play what was to be done i knew not to be cheated in so barefaced a manner was unendurable and yet how to avoid paying what i lost unless i could prove the fraud was a question difficult to solve in this dilemma i resolved to wake my faithful Usay by touching his foot under the table at the moment the capuchin was executing his fraud what was my joy then when on glancing towards the ci devant trumpeter i perceived his eyes twinkling brightly just above his arms notwithstanding that he pretended to sleep and i immediately saw that he had from the first appreciated the talents of my companions my resolution was instantly taken and letting the game proceed to its most anxious point i saw in the accidental mirror that the wine afforded me the signs of the worthy capuchin proceeding with vast celerity when starting suddenly up i caught his wrist as the hand was in the very act and held it there with all the vigour of a young and powerful frame excited to unusual energy by anger and indignation Houssay was upon his feet in a moment and catching the collar of the black cavalier who was beginning to swear some very big oaths he flung him back upon the ground with little ceremony at the same time dislodging from the lawn frills which adorned his wrist a pair of dice that the honest gentleman kept there to meet all occasions for a moment or two the presence of mind which is part of a sharper's profession abandoned our two amiable companions the capuchin especially remaining without motion of any kind his mouth open his eyes staring and his hands up in the air with three fingers extended exactly in the same attitude as he was when i detected his knavery 
he soon however recovered himself and jerking his hand out of my grasp with a force i knew not he possessed he burst into a fit of laughter very good very good indeed cried he so you have found it out well are you not very much obliged to us for the lesson remember it young man remember it to the last day you have to live for you may chance to fall into the hands of sharpers from whom you may not escape very easily the impudence of the fellow was beyond my patience especially as while he was speaking i had split one of the dice produced from his companion's sleeve and found it loaded with a piece of lead the size of a pea whenever i meet with sharpers said i i shall treat them but one way namely if they do not get out of the room whenever they are found out i shall kick them downstairs from the top to the bottom suppose there are no stairs said the capuchin coolly moving towards the door at the same time then i shall throw them out of the window replied i i weigh two hundred weight answered the monk with the same imperturbable composure good night my young vitol you'll be caught yet though your wings are so free come along count crack he continued to his companion whom i suffered to take up his own money after i repossessed myself of the pistoles which he had won before i had discovered his fraud your game is over for to-night good night fair sirs good night god bless you and keep you from sharpers and leering his small leaden eyes with a look strangely compounded of humour and cunning and even stupidity he rolled out of the room with his companion leaving us to our own reflections when they were gone my worthy attendant and myself stood looking at each other for some moments in silence at length however he began laughing i saw cried he what they were about from the first but i did not think your young wit was sharp as my old knowledge so i pretended to be asleep and lay watching them but you served them a famous trick count louis that you did your father would laugh heartily to hear it hush hush cried i for heaven's sake never mention it to my father or to any one but above all on no account to father francis i then exacted a promise to this effect from the good old soldier feeling heartily ashamed of my night's employment and turning as red as fire every time the thought crossed my mind that i had been sitting drinking and playing with a couple of vulgar sharpers who had nearly succeeded in cheating me of all the money which my father had given me from his own limited means to get rid of these pleasant reflections i hurried to bed and meeting the rotund form of the capuchin on the stairs nearly jostled him to the bottom in pure ill-humour End of chapter 6